Hello, and welcome to episode 142 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This episode, we're getting back to some of the terrific gold talks we heard at the Canadian Mining Symposium, recorded in London in May. We're going to hear from David Harkwell. He, of course, is best known as the CEO of royalty and streaming company Franco Nevada. But in this episode, he will be speaking in his role as chair of the World Gold Council. David's remarks here are split into two parts. First, he gives a speech up at the podium, and then the last bit, he uh, comes down from the podium, and we have a mini fireside chat, the two of us, just about the World Gold Council. And then we'll come back quickly with another episode that will talk about Franco Nevada specifically. This podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of juniors with mines and advanced projects in the Yukon. Check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and their Twitter feed at at investyukon. But before we hear from David Harkwell, we have a sponsored segment that we call a Mining Minute. In this Mining Minute, we're going to hear from Peter Corcoran. He's the Vice President of Sandvik Mining and Rock Technology Canada. This was recorded also at the Canadian Mine Symposium, where Sandvik was a gold sponsor. In case you're wondering uh, about the accent, that's a Liverpool accent, although Peter's been in Canada for 34 years. So take it away, Peter Corcoran. Sandvik Mining, if you're not aware of this, is uh, we're the world leader in the underground and surface mining uh, technologies. Uh, we have 15,000 employees globally, and we've been forefront on digital, and we're going to talk about now in the digital space and technology. Canadian mining is rapidly changing towards a digital future. The market price and the economical developments uh, requires that the mining manage their cost. So we're being asked by our customers to look at the cost to improve their cost per ton, their cost per meter and also focus on the unit cost per meter and cost per ton. So that's where our organization is starting to focus. While doing this, obviously we have to do it safely. So we're identifying the best way to safely do this with our customers. As we all know, we're in the midst of a, we'll call it a mega trend. These are the three business areas we call automation, digitization, and electrification. We're not going to talk today about electrification, but there's an awful lot in that space happening in Canada due to ventilation restrictions. Uh, Customers benefit in three ways, and that's by adopting our digital solutions, which is not just automation, it's the data coming from the mine infrastructure, increased production through use of the equipment through non-productive times, which will produce lower cost per ton and improved health and safety because we're taking people away from the risk. We'll take a little musical break and then come back with our featured segment with David Harkwell, CEO of Franco Nevada, the royalty company, speaking in his role as chair of the World Gold Council. And he will be introduced by the publisher of the Northern Miner, Anthony Vaccaro.
David Harkwell. He successfully led the initial public offering and listing of Franco Nevada onto the Toronto Stock Exchange in late 2007. And he served as CEO since then, during which time Franco Nevada has outperformed the gold price on all gold equity benchmarks. I think everyone in this room is familiar with the success of Franco Nevada and the incredible job that David's done in steering it. David previously held executive roles at Newmont Mining, and prior to that, he was senior executive of the original Franco Nevada Group of royalty companies for 15 years. And how we'd like to do it today is to have David come up and give you a bit of a presentation straight from him to you, after which time the editor-in-chief, John Cumming, will sit down with David for a fireside chat, and we'll get more of his insights and more of his thoughts that way. So David, please. Alors, je voudrais remercier la Maison du Canada et aussi la haute commissionnaire Janice Chavrette for leur hospitalité aujourd'hui. I'd also like to thank the Northern Miner. It's, it's a, an honor to be a, a keynote speaker today. My dad was a mining exploration person as well, so I kind of grew up reading the Miner. So I think it's very fitting to be here today. And the third thing, I'm, I'm just very happy to be in London. I come. Every year, I've been doing it for almost 30 years to talk about mining investments. It's been, uh, it's always a, tr a pleasure. A couple years ago, actually, I was honored, I was invited to Buckingham Palace, and I was coached. If, if royalty approached me, you know, I was, I was told how to address them, Your Royal Highness, and subsequently, Sir. And uh, I had my Franco Nevada hat on, so actually, I was honored. Prince Philip came up to me, you know, the Duke of Edinburgh. He shook my hand, he says, what do you do? And so, you know, I said, your Royal Highness, I have my Franco Nevada hat on right now, I'm in the royalty business too. And I collect, I collect royalties, you know, from gold mines all around the world. And, and I, but I carried on. And I said, I, I'm very impressed by all the gold you have in Buckingham Palace. And he said, you can't have my gold. <laughs> and that's exactly, he has exactly the right attitude. Some gold is precious, it's something that needs to be protected. So actually, most of what I want to talk about right now is how we're doing that with the World Gold Council. And my message today is that the gold industry is perhaps too complacent about the gold price, that we spend more time marketing equity than we do actually wor about worrying about our core product. We're unique as an industry because we're one of the few industries that actually produces a lot more than is consumed. And if you look back over millennia, we've created the stockpile of gold at surface right now that swamps any annual production that we have of gold. And what I like to sort of scare mining CEOs about is that half the gold is in jewelry. So we say, okay, that's fabricated, that's likely to stay in jewelry. But the other half of gold, about $4 trillion worth, is sitting there in bar forms and wafers in coins. It's highly liquid. And what this is, I, I like to have that image of this liquid pond being held back by an tailings impoundment wall. And this is something that's vitally important, is that we have to, as an industry, be able to convince those people that are holding gold to maintain it and even actually buy more each year if we're going to make, have a compelling story as an industry. And one of the things that, you know, if we're not paranoid about this, is just look back at what happened just recently. Now, if you look back to the early 70s, we had net selling by the central banks, and they represented, right today, about one and a half trillion of the gold that's in the marketplace, that really liquid stuff. And we were in a phase where there was a breach in that tailings impoundment wall. That gold was being sold aggressively by, by uh, central banks 30 years ago, and then 20 years ago, in this town, 
Gordon Brown set the bottom of the market by you know, selling the Brit Bank of England uh, gold reserves. And, and that was a terrible precedent because all the other central banks were following that lead. And so what you could see is that we the World Gold Council provided a tremendous service to the industry by spearheading the central bank gold agreement. This was done in 1999. It didn't stop gold selling. But what it did was slow down what was an acceleration of gold sales as each central bank was actually competing to try to sell gold ahead of the other bank. And I think what that slow, slow, slow down, I think, was very helpful for the industry because it could have been more of a catastrophe. And then the other irony is that, you know, we all suffered through the global financial crisis, but gold company CEOs should be on their knees thanking God that there was a global financial crisis. Because that, in 19, uh, 2007, is what turned central banks into buyers of gold. And, and we eliminated the net selling of gold. And so we've been the biggest beneficiary of the global financial crisis because we have now a major uh, a systemic change in the gold market with the central banks buying. And I think what the World Gold Council has been doing now is making sure not only does that stay up there, but can we accelerate that trend further. And I think they're doing some excellent work. World Gold Council has been the leader in terms of helping the industry make sure that the central bankers appreciate the asset that they have, and that has a true monetary value, and true value is a central bank asset. The World Gold Council is working right now with 140 of 158 central banks around the world. And right now, we're the trusted advisor to the banks. We're providing education and symposiums and schools and accounting policies for the central bankers where they attend universities here in the UK or in the US, China or Singapore. And what we do is we get the central bankers together in a room. They all see the positive reinforcement between each other. They learn how to account for gold and they see this as a tremendous service. The central bankers just earlier this year awarded the World Gold Council the Central Banking Award for being a trusted advisor and supporter to them. And I think this is paying a lot of dividends to us in the first quarter of this year, it was the record buying by central banking since 1972, since we delinked the dollar to, the, to gold. And so I think it's a very positive trend already starting for this year. 20, last year was a record. We're already on track to be a record again for this year. And I think the World Gold Council is playing an important role in this. But that's one and a half trillion of the four trillion dollars I'm telling you that's behind that impoundment uh, wall. And are we doing a good job on the rest of it? Well, this is what institutional investors, this is a survey of US or European pension funds. And, and this was just done late in 2018. And gold is the last thing they're thinking about in terms of an asset class to have in their portfolios. And so this tells us we have a lot of work to do in the sector. And one of the th aspects about it, it it's both a, a risk, but it's also a huge opportunity for us. There's 186 trillion of financial assets invested in the world. Less than 1% is held in gold. And yet, you have asked John Reed, our market strategist who's here today, he'll, see, he'll tell you sort of the optimal weighting is probably closer to 4% in any portfolio because it has a negative correlation to other assets. So if we can do a good job of convincing institutions they should have just a bit more gold, if we ever got them to, another, to the full 4% weighting, that's another $6 trillion of demand for gold, which is much more than the stockpile we have right now. So even a partial move that, like that could actually change the entire tone of the industry. That's the opportunity. That's one of the things the World Gold Council is trying to pursue right now. In terms of how do we get the institutions to be interested in gold, they've told us quite a few things in that 
They need better market information. They need to have better visibility of how gold is traded and the volumes behind it, better perspective in terms of the efficiency and fairness of the marketplace. And I think if we can get some of those things delivered, and, uh, and we would have less penalties from a number of the regulators in the business. And so if we can get that, we're going to have a much better gold market. That is core to the World Gold Council's activities today. A lot of this in terms of influencing the decisions, it's just pure research, providing data to the marketplace. The World Gold Council's been doing this for 30 years. But we've stepped up the game. And you'll, you'll find in the last six months, there's been two new products that have been provided by the World Gold Council, beyond the ones you see in terms of the gold demand trends and gold insights. And this is the Gold Hub. The Gold Hub is a unique database right now for institutional investors, where they have now all the data they need to do their own modeling in terms of the investment demand for gold by geography or physical demand for gold by, by geography. We can suggest various models for them in terms of how to model the gold market, but we can't be an advisor. But what we can do is here's the tools in front of you, you can go forward with that. The other tool that's now available is the gold valuation framework. If you have your own portfolio as an investor, institutional investor, and depending on the type of assets you have in that portfolio, what is gold, a little bit of gold, a 1%, 2%, 5% of that portfolio, what does it do to your risk return in various market environments? These are brand new free products. They've just been launched. And John Reed, if you could just stand for a minute, I'm going to just embarrass you. He's the pioneer doing this. Ask him any questions because it's a product that we think is going to help institutional investors be much more effective in terms of treating gold as an institutional asset and uh, doing it, and it's something that's available from the World Gold Council today, and so please take advantage of that. Also what the World Gold Council is doing is trying to make it easier to both buy gold and trade gold. And one of the things is a lot of you will remember that the World Gold Council pioneered the first major gold ETF, the GLD on New York, partnered with State Street in 2004. And today it's about a $30 billion asset, about, there's $30 million worth of gold held in that ETF. Actually, I had the privilege last year to go actually visit the safe here in a secret location here in London. And uh, so it's very impressive, you know, a room this size, gold stacked up. I did count the bars roughly myself just to make sure it was all there, so I can personally vouch for it. But, so it's a pleasure there. We did that, and it's actually been the pioneer for a lot of other funds. There's now 70 billion other uh, dollars worth of gold tied up in other ETFs around the world, in, in Europe, in Asia, and the U.S. So it's $100 billion from something that the uh, World Gold Council pioneered. But some of these products aren't suited for everybody. And so what the World Gold Council has been doing is pioneering new products. And last summer we launched a new product called the GLDM, the mini GLD. And what this is designed for is a lot of investors today buy their gold on platforms. TD Ameritrade, Schwab, they have a Roth account or 401k retirement account. And what we've done now is made it easy for these platforms to say, you can make gold now an offering. So you can buy equities, you can buy fixed income, and you can buy a little piece of gold. And what's great about these retirement accounts, it's sticky gold. We have about $650 million now in the GLD Mini. It's all buying, virtually no selling. And we think this is a new product that's going to continue to grow. So we see this is going to be a new product that will take more gold from the marketplace and will be helping to support uh, and sustain gold demand. The other aspect of the World Gold Council is new trading platforms for gold. And I think the environment of, of, of price fixes is not a popular thing nowadays. And over-the-counter markets, what regulators really want to see is as fair, transparent markets that are efficient. 
And so more clearing markets, such as we have with the Shanghai Gold Exchange, which the World Gold Council has been an advisor and a participant in terms of helping that get launched, and subsequent products such as the benchmark price on the Shanghai Gold Exchange. And also with LME Precious, which is a new project. We're getting good traction now. Not all the players are yet involved in it. But again, we think these trading platforms are part of the future for helping provide a better platforms for trading gold and making it something that even more institutions can participate. And of course, fundamental is uh, you know, gold demand on a physical basis around the world. Uh, the World Gold Council has been present in India and China for almost 20, 30 years. And one of the things that's happened is in China, the Chinese have actually listened and they've actually formed policies in the early 2000s that have been very friendly to gold. So not only is there a retail market for gold in China right now, but there's a regulatory environment in China that now allows their pension funds to buy gold, physical gold in their pension fund, it allows their mutual funds to buy gold, it allows their insurance companies to have gold in their portfolios. Because they really believe the science that gold is something that actually will improve your risk returns over a cycle and make your portfolio returns more, more powerful. And this is something that we'd like the rest of the world to be able to accept the same philosophies and have a regulatory environment that is as open for our financial institutions to buy physical gold or other gold products in their portfolios. There's a lot of policy work done in China. I don't need to read you through, but the fundamental time was back in 2001, 2004, when they set the policies for creating the modern gold market. Now you have fintech applications in, in China that have, you can be, are very reliable. You don't have to worry about the counterparty risk. The World Gold Council has been working very hard in India as well. It's just a lot slower there. And so what we're seeing now is we're getting more traction. I just look at it and I'm kind of looking at the measure. We're 15 years behind in India. But if we can do anything what was happening in China in terms of making it a more modern market and something more receptive to the mainstream, uh, I think then there's huge potential there as well to expand uh, the demand for gold and uses of gold from, to a broader market. In terms of the other efforts by the World Gold Council, you know, these are very nice wins. And one of the things that was, uh, was done just in the la last two years is the World Gold Council was a pioneer in helping the Islamic world to try to uh, actually rationalize whether gold was Sharia compliant. Believe it or not, we know the Muslim world likes gold, but it was never clear whether it was compliant. And so that issue is now resolved. We, we've now reserved what is required for buying or trading gold and doing it within a compliant policy so that any country now can buy it and not be concerned that some cleric will say, you haven't bought the gold properly. And so this is, uh, I think, a great initiative. We're now seeing the benefit in a number of now Sharia-compliant trading exchanges being set up in the Middle East, a number of funds that are now promoting to Muslim investors Sharia-compliant uh, funds. And so it's possible now we can expand that market as well. Also, we've been active in policies with other governments. Uh, right now, the, the highest VAT on gold in the world is in Russia. So that's an obvious target. The World Gold Council has been providing support to the various parties and, and uh, 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 the industry itself in Russia. And I think that support has been helpful that we expect, we're very optimistic that something will soon be passed to help actually make it easier for the retail market in China to be able, or Russia to buy gold. Our fingers are crossed this will come across the line soon. But there's similar efforts happening in other jurisdictions to try to get 
better treatment for tax equalization. Gold is sometimes taxed at a higher rate in other countries than other products. So we're fighting to get gold treated as a mainstay asset and be less regulated against as we have in some jurisdictions. So over time, there's been an evolution in terms of what the World Gold Councils have been about. And I look at my original pioneers that set up the World Gold Council in 1987, Peter Gush, uh, Harry Conger, Dale Hendrick, these guys that came from the big global mining companies, and they said, we have to do something similar to what De Beers is doing to protect the market. The original focus was jewelry marketing and research. Well, the focus has moved away from jewelry marketing now because we think the best value add for the industry is focusing on these other policy, central bank initiatives, and the investment market and regulatory market for gold. And so you can see this trend's changed, and it's changed a bit with the membership. But one of the things I like to say is all this work, hugely valuable. I like to say as well, if we didn't have the World Gold Council, we would need to create it right now. These initiatives are the deliverables that we have for the gold industry. Tremendous value. Members are paying 10 cents an ounce, an annual ounce, to be a member of the World Gold Council because it's essentially self-financing from the money we make from the ETFs. I like to tell members of the mining industry, this is the best 10 cents in your cost structure in terms of maintaining the veracity of our industry, making it an investment destination, and making it uh, something attractive to uh, investors around the world. I think we're blessed to have it. And I, what I'd like to do is finish by just basically thanking the members that we have for the World Gold Council. We have 26 companies. Even Mark Bristol now is a member of the World Gold Council. We represent uh, over 100 projects, 500 projects, over half of the corporate gold that's produced around the world. So I thank them for participating in this effort and, and doing a good job for industry. So. Thank you. Okay, I'd just like to invite John Cumming up, Editor-in-Chief of the Northern Miner. Yeah, well, let's start with the uh, World Gold Council. We're just a short walk away, a 10-minute walk from the uh, World Headquarters. And there's been a tradition the last few years of Canadian mine executives being the chair. But some big news this year is the new CEO, David Tate, in February 2019, from the financial sector. And some nice trivia about David. He's raised over a million pounds for charity by climbing Mount Everest five times. So with him coming on board, is there some new initiative that uh, he's going to work on? Well, the first initiative is to get in the Guinness Book of World Records because the first mine he visited was Mopeng in, uh, in South Africa, and he went to the absolute lowest level. So he's now getting registered in the book for doing the largest vertical on Earth, you know, from the bottom of Mopeng up to the top of Everest. <laughs> And so you'll, you'll see that hopefully sometime later this year. You'll be in the Guinness Book of Workers. I think, you know, it, the last CEO did a tremendous job, Aaron Schismanian. He was with us for 10 and a half years. So it was part of, we've been redoing the governance of the World Gold Council. We have a broader set of committees now running it. And I think at the same time, it made sense to change the CEO. And so it's kind of a refreshing of the whole uh, way we run it. There's a lot of engagement right now by the gold companies in terms of Gary Goldberg. He's been very active on a new ESG initiative that's going to be coming out later this summer mm -hmm. uh, for the gold industry. Kelvin Dushinsky now is the vice chair, so he'll be now, he's, he's in line to succeed me next year on the, on the World Gold Council. Uh, we also have the Australians now are very uh, active. Mick Wilkes of Oceana Gold, Sandy Biswas of Newcrest, uh, they're taking roles now in the executive for it. But uh, uh, what it is is I think we're getting a much better interaction between the members on a broader basis than we had in the past, and with a management team that are really doing a great job there. Right, and just growing your membership, 
you gave a bit of your pitch there, but is it basically that 10 cent, that's, that's the resistance for joining? Or is there another reason? No, there's different reasons because one of the things is we do have standards. And so we, we pioneered the all-in sustaining cost standard. And so we came out with new guidance because some of the members were drifting in terms of how they were doing the accounting. So what we're saying, if you're a member, you should really be following the standards you have for cost accounting. Also, we're pushing now that the industry as a whole should go to a higher level on ESG standards. Mm -hmm. And so we have the principles agreed internally. We've actually been floating them in the marketplace in terms of uh, what we think the industry should be doing. It's going to be hard for some companies to come in saying, you want us to have third-party verification on these very aspects of our industry, and we have to do it over these certain number of years. Yeah, it's going to be tougher. So I think the harder part is actually getting up to the standard that we want to have of the industry, we think it's going to make it a better investment destination, but not every company can do it. So the 10 cents is just nominal. We don't need that. But it, we need to say you have to have some commitment to join, but the harder commitment is to live up to standards that are going to get tougher over the next few years. That does it for this episode of the Northern Miner podcast. As I said, we'll come right back with David Harkwell part two with his Franco Nevada comments. As always, you can help out the podcast by liking it, sharing it, commenting on it, subscribing to it. All these things help raise the profile of the podcast. And let's give one last thank you to our longtime podcast sponsor, the Yukon Mining Alliance, and our Money Minute sponsor, Sandvik Mining. That's it for now. Until next time, bye-bye.